The Old Testament book of Proverbs is just full of practical wisdom and encouragement about how to live a godly life. And so over the next few weeks, I thought I would share with you some of the wisdom in these moments together as we're gathering ourselves for and tuning our own spirit and heart to a time of worship together. It's one of my favorite books in the whole Bible, but these uh, words this morning come from Proverbs chapter 2, and here's uh, what the Solomon says, tune your ears to wisdom, concentrate on understanding, cry out for insight, and ask for understanding, for the Lord grants wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He grants a treasure of common sense to the honest. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity. He guards the paths of the just, and he protects those who are faithful to him. What great words uh, to be reminded of this morning. Let's pray together, shall we? God of us all, from, who from generation to generation has heard the cries of your children, humbly today we come and seek you. We seek your wisdom and understanding. We seek forgiveness, that same forgiveness that we've experienced before that welcomes sinners like us back into your embrace time and time again. God, hear the thoughts of our hearts, examine our motives, forgive our faults, both of word and action, protect us from the evil one. We are here today to worship you. We're here to experience your grace in our lives. So hear our prayer. We ask this through your son who died that we might know the true cost of forgiveness and who was raised to life in order to give life to us all. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. We start a new teaching series uh, today uh, and uh, be over the next uh, several weeks, I'm gonna be introducing you to a man whose life story is very similar to yours and mine. He had many struggles in life, uh, just like many of us do. And when God clearly told him what he needed to do, rather than obeying God, he disobeyed. But when he repented, uh, uh, it was only after God got his attention in a very special way and God gave him a second chance uh, to obey him and his plan for uh, this man's life. If you're still wondering who this man is, it's Jonah. And his, he is, uh, a, his story is found in the Old Testament book that bears his name. And uh, so for the next six weeks, we're going to be following the adventures of Jonah's life. And we're gonna discover how he and us can be changed, really changed, by the grace of God. I invite you to pray with me this morning. Father in heaven, we come today with joy in our hearts to worship you, realizing that we don't need to ask you to be here, for wherever your people gather, you have promised to be among us. And so we thank you for that abiding presence. Just let your spirit make this valuable time today. Let our eyes of faith be open so that we may see you clearly. Let our ears be tuned to your voice. Let our minds be sensitive to your truth. Let our hearts respond in tenderness so that we might receive all that you have for us this day. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Is there a better story in all of the Bible than the story of Jonah? Generations of Sunday school children have listened with wide-eyed amazement at the story of the fish that caught a man. 
We love this story, and yet for all of our telling and retelling, I think we barely understand the depths of its meaning. With this message, as I said earlier, we begin a six-part series on the book of Jonah called Changed by Grace. In order to frame this theme properly, let me start with words of the French philosopher Pascal, who said, to make a person a saint, grace is absolutely necessary, and whoever doubts it does not know what a saint is or what a person is. Some years ago, Philip Yancey wrote a mega bestseller called What's So Amazing About Grace? And in his book, he called grace the last great word, meaning it's one of the last of the great words that has retained its original meaning. And we know what grace means. It means free and undeserved bounty. For instance, we pray when we pray at mealtime, we say grace, don't we? We thank God for our food, or at least I hope you do. We are grateful for kindness done by another person. To show our thanks, we offer a gratuity to our server at the restaurant. Something offered at no cost is said to be gratis. <clears throat> and when we have overdue books from the library, we may return them at no charge during the grace period. See, it's commonly said that Christianity is supremely a religion of grace. And that's certainly true. We sing about grace. We write poems about grace. We name our churches and our children after grace. If you ask most Christ followers, we certainly say we believe in grace, but outside of the worship experience, the word is rarely on our lips. Yancey points out that part of our problem is in the nature of grace itself. Grace is hard to accept. It's hard to believe. It's hard, harder yet to receive. We all have a certain skepticism when a telemarketer tells us, I'm not trying to sell you anything. I just want to offer you a free trip to Hawaii. Automatically, we wonder what's the catch because we've all been taught that there's no free lunch. But Yancey goes on to say that grace shocks us with what it offers. It's truly not of this world. It frightens us <clears throat> with what it does for those of us who have sinned in our life. Grace teaches us that God does for others what we would never do for ourselves. You know, we might be willing to save the not-so-bad people in this world, but God starts with prostitutes and thieves and works down from there. Grace is a gift that costs everything to the giver and absolutely nothing to the receiver. It is given to those who don't deserve it, who barely recognize it, <clears throat> and hardly ever appreciate it. As I reflected on, uh, on Yancey's words about grace, <clears throat> a thought hit me in a very powerful way this week, and that is that God is more gracious than I would be. You know how I know that? Because God saves people that I probably wouldn't save if I were God. God blesses people in this world that I probably wouldn't bless if I were God, and he uses people in his service that I probably wouldn't use if I were God, which is why I'm glad he's God and I'm not. The Bible says that he is a God of compassion and mercy. 
He is a God who is slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. And you know what? That's good news for us. The doctrine of grace may be one of the hardest doctrines in all the Bible to accept because it's not hard to understand the word. We know what that word means. Our problem comes in the application. Grace asks us to accept two things that we don't want to accept. First, there is nothing in this world that we can do to, ex- to save ourselves. And second, if God doesn't save us, we will not be saved. Nothing more clearly summarizes the true meaning of grace than the simple phrase that we find in Jonah chapter 2, verse 9, where it says, my salvation comes from the Lord alone. That statement is both striking and humorous because it comes from the world's worst missionary. As we begin our journey today with, with Jonah, let's clarify one point. Jonah is not the hero of this story. God is. At the beginning, he is running from God. At the end, he is arguing with God. And in between, he's praying and preaching, but he's no hero. In some sense, he is the anti-hero. This book in the Old Testament is about God. And we see it clearly this way. The fish is mentioned four times. The city is mentioned nine times. Jonah is mentioned 18 times. And God is mentioned 38 times in this book. The book is about God and how great God's heart is toward prodigal sons and daughters who run away from him. God never gives up on Jonah, not when he runs away and not when he's sitting under the vine at the end of the book, pouting. And I think here's the takeaway lesson for all of us. We are so much like Jonah that it's scary. There is a little Jonah in all of us, and there's a whole lot of Jonah in most of us. And that's why we need not just grace, but outrageous grace. So with that as an introduction, here are three quick notes about the book of Jonah. First, it is, I believe it's a true story. Contrary to the critics and the skeptics who would tell us that this is a story, uh, not not a true story, but a total myth. I believe this story is recorded for us in Scripture as historical truth. In other words, there are others uh, who believe that, uh, there's others of us who believe that this was a, a man, there was a real man by the name of Jonah who did flee to the city of Tarshish, who really was swallowed whole by a great fish, who really did survive for three days in the belly of that fish, and who actually was vomited up on dry ground. I believe it's a true story, just not a myth, not a legend, not a saga, not a fable, not a parable. Jonah is a real story, but with great biblical truth. And we can date the book back to about 765 BC, during the days of Jeroboam II, who was king of Israel at that time. And Jonah, we are told, came from the area of Gath Hefer, which is a little town in the northern part of Israel, in the region that the New Testament calls Galilee, not far from the village of Nazareth where Jesus grew up. That means that Jonah was a country boy. He was raised in a rural area and most likely grew up in a poor family. But secondly, it's a short story, only four chapters, 48 verses, about 1,300 words. You can read it in like 15 minutes. 
Yet it tells us all we need to know. Beautifully balanced, deep and profound, this book opens a window for us into the heart, the very heart of God. And then third, it is a revealing story. I'm sure most of us have taken a ship to Tarshish at one time or another in our life. We've gotten off track. We've left what we knew to be God's plan for our life and decided to go our own way. You see, we all know what it means to run the other way in life, and we know how creative our Lord can be when he wants to bring us back to where we ought to be. Let me give you just a simple outline of how how we can uh, understand the flow of this story. Chapter one, Jonah flees. Chapter two, Jonah prays. Chapter three, Jonah preaches. Chapter four, Jonah pouts. Chapter one, Jonah is running away away from God. In chapter two, he's praying to God. Chapter three, he's speaking for God. Chapter four, he is learning about God. We call this book one of the minor prophets, and yet it contains just one prophecy. It's really a book about Jonah and God. And we know that our Lord loved this story because Jonah is the only minor prophet that Jesus mentions by name in Matthew chapter 12. So the story begins this way. The Lord gave this message to Jonah, son of Amittai. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. Announce my judgment against it because I have seen how wicked its people are. Now some of you may have a version of the Bible that says, Arise and go to Nineveh. That's what the Hebrew literally says, Jonah, get up and go to Nineveh now. It's amazing, isn't it, how just a few words can change our life. We can be driving down the highway, we can get a phone call that changes our life forever. If it's good news, it changes it one way. If it's bad news, it changes it another way. Either way, our life can be turned upside down in a single moment. I've heard people use the phrase, life can turn on a dime, and it certainly does. That's what happened to Jonah when God said three words to him, go to Nineveh. Now note what Jonah was to do, go to Nineveh and preach against it. His sermon title was not to be God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, no. Nor was it to be, Come and discover your best life now. No, God said, the title of your sermon is Bad News from Almighty God. Go and preach against the wickedness of this city. Go to Nineveh and preach against it. Their evil was a dirty stench to the Lord, and the time for judgment had come. When God said Nineveh was wicked, he wasn't kidding. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria which was the most powerful empire in the world in that day. The Assyrians had a reputation for cruelty that is hard for us to fathom. Their specialty was brutality of a gross and disgusting kind. When their armies captured a city or a country, unspeakable atrocities would occur. Things like skinning people alive and decapitation and mutilization and ripping out tongues. I won't go into the rest. Ancient records from Assyria boast about their cruelty as a badge of courage and honor and power. 
The Assyrians had no use for the Jews. The Jews hated the Assyrians. They were hated by their, because of their bloodthirsty cruelty. They were hated be, for their idolatry. They were hated for their arrogance. For a Jewish man to be told by God to go and preach to the people of Nineveh was repugnant. As far as Jonah was concerned, Nineveh could go straight to hell. Go ahead, God, push the button, open the trap door, let them just fall into the pit. That's how Jonah felt about Nineveh. So what qualifies as Nineveh today? Well, I'm going to suggest to you that Nineveh can be whatever pulls us out of our comfort zone. Nineveh might be the place where God is calling us to go where we don't want to go. Nineveh is the people who have hurt you deeply, and God is saying, go and give them my message of forgiveness. Nineveh is the place God is calling you to go where you don't want to go. Nineveh is danger. Nineveh is discomfort. Nineveh is whatever you hate that God loves deeply. So what do you do when God says, go to Nineveh? and you hate those people, you need to think about that sooner or later because that's what God's gonna say to all of us at some point in our life. I want you to do this. You may be uncomfortable, you may not wanna do it. This is my call upon your life. When God says to Jonah, arise, go to Nineveh and preach against it, we might expect the next verse to say, and Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. But that's not what happened. Verse 3 says, he ran for the Lord and he headed for Tarshish. Look at verse 3. But Jonah got up and he went in the opposite direction to get away from the Lord. He went down to the port of Joppa where he found a ship leaving for Tarshish. He bought a ticket and went on board hoping to escape from the Lord by sailing to Tarshish. Now let me give you some geography uh, lesson at this point. Nineveh was 500 miles north and east of where Jonah was. It was a major city on the banks of the Tigris River. In contemporary terms, that would be in modern-day Iraq, about 300 miles north of Baghdad. Archaeologists have found the ruins of ancient Nineveh right outside the city of Mosul in Iraq. Tarshish was almost 2,000 miles west in Spain. So we've got this 2,500-mile gap between God's call and Jonah's desire. God says, go east. Jonah said, I think I'm going west. The text says Jonah went down to Joppa. That's true on two levels. First, to get to Joppa, Jonah had to go down to the seacoast, to the port of Joppa. And secondly, by going to Joppa, he was going down spiritually. Now, if you look at the action in this chapter, you will see that Jonah went down four times. Verse 3 says he went down to Joppa. He went down to the hold, into the hold of the ship in verse 4. He went down into the sea in verse 15. And he went down into the belly of the great fish in verse 17. Now, that's not coincidence. It is a statement about what happens to us when we disobey God's call. Anytime that we run from God, we never go up, we always go down. 
So why did this reluctant prophet run from God? He didn't want to go to Nineveh. He didn't care about Nineveh. He didn't think God should care about Nineveh. He didn't want them to repent. And he didn't want a God who loved people like that. It was perfectly fine with him if God sent them all straight to the pit. In fact, that was his preference. Jonah's problem was never ultimately about Nineveh. Jonah's problem was always about God. So Jonah has decided to run from God. He heads to Joppa where he just happens to find a boat that's going where he wants to go. What are the chances of that? Isn't that an amazing coincidence? It's a long way from Joppa to Tarshish. It's not like there's a boat leaving every half hour, you know? Think about that. There's a profound truth in this part of the story. When we decide to disobey God, there is always going to be a boat going in the wrong direction. And there is always going to be room for one more passenger on that boat. What are the chances that a poor man would have the money in his pocket to pay for the fare of a ship that just happened to be going where he wanted to go? I do know this, when we decide to run from the Lord, Satan is always happy to provide the transportation. So Jonah found a ship, he paid the fare with the money he had in his pocket, and I think even here there's a lesson to be learned. Money gives us options, doesn't it? So if Jonah has no money, he can't buy a ticket to Tarshish. If we've got money in our pocket, it may actually be easier for us to run from the Lord, to go in the other direction because We have options. I'm thinking about this, uh, and I thought about the excuses that Jonah might have given for why he ran away from the Lord, and here are a few things that he might have been saying. You know, I think think God's calling me to Tarshish. You know, they need the Lord there too. I've been praying about it. I have peace in my heart about this decision. Look at the circumstances. I, I had the money. Ship just happened to be going there. This must be God's will for me. I love... Uh, you know, I, I, I love Nineveh, but I'm not the person. I'm not the right person to go there and preach. I just feel like going to Tarshish is the right thing to do today. See, whenever we decide to disobey God, we can always, always find an excuse. It's easy to justify wrongdoing when we cloak it in religious language. And as we stand back and look at this story, a question I think naturally arises, how far will God let us go in our sin? How far will God let us go? I don't know, I don't think any any one of us knows the full answer to that, but it appears that sometimes the answer is God will let us go pretty far. He doesn't always stop us quickly. In an email, there was a, I found this story of a woman whose husband had left her for another woman, and this is part of what she wrote. She said, I'm working through forgiveness. It is a moment-by-moment process. My conviction right now is not to divorce him, but our church has pursued him, friends have, our pastor has, the leaders of our congregation. He has changed so much but he has decided to no longer be part of that, this community of faith 
And she ends it by saying, I fear for my husband. How far will God let us go? Why doesn't he just stop us? Before we do something stupid, before we go in the wrong direction, before we you know, make up our mind to go away from what God would want us to do, my answer is that part of God's judgment is not to stop us. He could have arranged things so the ship was going uh, from a different port. He could have arranged so that the ship had no room for Jonah. He could have arranged so that things, you know, like a thief came and robbed Jonah. He didn't have money in his pocket before he ever bought that ticket. But sometimes the judgment of God is simply that God lets us go on and on in our sin so that we have to face the consequences of our disobedience. And I think that's what the Bible talks about when it talks about the severe mercy of God. That's why in Romans chapter one, it repeatedly says God abandoned them. And I believe that when a society decides that it doesn't need God anymore, God's response is not always to bring out the lightning and the thunder. More often than not, God says, you know, if you wanna jump off the cliff, I've warned you time and time again, but if that's what you're gonna do, I'm not gonna stop you. How far will God let us go in our sin? I don't think any one of us knows the full answer to that, but as we consider the beginning of Jonah's sad story, remember that we can run, but we can't hide from God. God was with Jonah every step of the way. Though Jonah tried to leave the Lord, the Lord never left him. So we learn that it is the patience of God that allows us to run away. It's the wisdom of God that provided a ship. It was the providence of God that sent a storm. It's the kindness of God that sends ultimately the great fish. And if God didn't care, he wouldn't let us go on in our sin forever. As we come to the end of this message this morning, it looks like Jonah has gotten away with it. He's run from God, he's bought a ticket, he's now on his ship headed for Tarshish. He's a happy camper. So far, his plan has worked to perfection. And he is so happy that as our story ends, he's going down into the hold of the ship and he's gonna take a nap. But you know what, God is not through with Jonah yet, he's just getting started. In Proverbs 14, 12, we read, there is a path before each person that seems right, but it ends in death. So let me wrap up this message with three thoughts for us to think about this week. First, every step out of the will of God is always a downward step. No one ever disobeyed God and went up. We always go down. It gets worse, down to Joppa, down to the ship, down to the sea, down in the belly of the great fish, every step out of the will of God is always, always a downward step. Secondly, we get away quickly, but we recover slowly. You know, it's easy to go down. It's easy to get off the right path. It's easy to fall into sin and, and to just have some fun for a while, but the road back is difficult and often very painful. And then third, Satan can work through circumstances just like God can. We don't always think about it this way, but Satan has his ships. And he always has room in his ships. And his ships always are going in the direction we want to go when we're running away from God. He can make disobedience look so good. 
because it always has favorable, it always looks like favorable circumstances. So as Jonah gets ready to take a nap, Jonah may have thought, you know, things are going so well for me, this must be God's will. But if he thought that, he's wrong because the Lord had already made his will clear to him. No set of favorable circumstances can override what God has clearly said. So down deep, he knows he knew God's will, he just didn't want to do it. So I began today by saying, I'm calling the series on Jonah Changed by Grace. And you may be saying, where's the grace of God in this story? Well, the answer is simple. God let Jonah disobey. He didn't kill him on the spot. He gave him the freedom to mess up his life. That didn't seem like grace at the time, but it was. God works even in the midst of our disobedience to bring us to himself. Sometimes God lets us go way, way, way off course so that when we finally see our sin for what it is, we are ready to come back. We're ready to return to the Lord. Meanwhile, Jonah's disobedience looks pretty good. Happy sailing, Jonah. (laughs) But guess what? Watch out. There's a big fish in your future. This is how life really works, isn't it? Sin looks good for a while. Jonah experienced the pleasures of sin for a season, and if sin always brought immediate misery, it wouldn't be all that attractive to us, would it? But the bitterness is coming later. The sadness is coming. Sin is fun for a while. The scripture says, be not deceived. God is not mocked. And Jonah is about to find that out the hard way. So stay tuned for the rest of the story. Got to come back next week for part two. Let's pray together. Father, we're glad that your grace is greater than our sin. Some of us have loved ones today who seem to be living the high life on the ship to Tarshish. Some, of, some people just seem to have gotten away with their disobedience and we wonder where you are in that story, where you are in their lives. Maybe some of us right now are looking to take a ride on a ship headed in the wrong direction for ourselves. God, speak to us and wake us up and help us to believe more deeply in your outrageous grace that is always calling us back to yourself. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.